Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode 124. And in this episode, we will discuss the concept of growth versus value investing. If you have a question, you can contact me directly via Twitter or Facebook. Got a topic for me to present on? You can reach out to me and I will definitely consider it. For those of you that are new to the channel, there are three main aims. The first aim is to be educated about finances. Improving your financial literacy would lead to the second aim, and that is to be empowered with the knowledge of financial literacy. So you can take the knowledge to your credentialed advisor and be empowered and speak at a level that you can understand in. And the third aim of this podcast channel is to be entertained. Just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you make any financial decisions after listening to one of my episodes. Please take it to your credentialed financial advisor before making any real decisions. In other words, don't listen to some random guy on the internet ranting about personal finances. But if you're stuck on what to do, here are some simple steps to get you on the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. You are the most important person in your life, which means you take at least 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That's your money, never to be touched ever again. Step two is you've got to take that money and invest it, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market, so I just invest in the stock market. Step three is wherever possible, you've got to reinvest dividends. The power of compounding by reinvesting dividends is phenomenal. Step four is you've got to do it for the long term. I'm not talking 5, 10 or 15 years. I'm talking 20, 30, if not 40 plus years. The longer you start, the better it is. And the earlier you start, the better it is. And step five, my favorite, is you've got to automate every step as much as you possibly can. With automation means there's less chances that you make mistakes and forget to invest. And there's more chances that you're going to stick to the plan. If you just follow these simple five steps and institute them in your personal finances, you're probably going to have more money than you'll ever need in your life. And remember, money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness. Use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you a lot better. Now, before we go on to the main topic of growth versus value investing, I have a question from M who asks, Hi, Dev. Just a question about dividends. Do I need to declare it in my tax return? That's a pretty good question. And I've covered this topic extensively in previous episodes. Uh, Episode 102, where I talk about dividend reinvestment plans. Episode 65, I discuss dividends and distributions. 
episode 31, I discuss the concept of dividend investing. And episode 118, more recently, I discussed DSSP, where I include dividends and how they're taxed. But to answer your specific question, let's use an example. Amy has an investment portfolio worth a half a million dollars, producing a 3% dividend yield, which amounts to around $15,000 per year. This works out to be a quarterly dividend of $3,750. This occurs as a franked dividend. Now, suppose Amy has a taxable income of $125,000 per year and a marginal tax rate of about 37.5%. How will the $15,000 of dividends that Amy receives be taxed for Amy? Now, most Australian dividends are frank dividends, and this means tax has already been paid on the dividend Amy receives, and therefore there is a tax credit attached to the dividends being paid. So in this case, let's assume there's a $4,500 franking credit attached to the dividend being paid. Now, I've kept the figures, even numbers and approximations to make calculations easier. Um, and in this case, let's say 4,500 franking credits um, may be attached to the dividends paid out of $15,000. Remembering the $15,000 dividend, which is paid to the investor, that is Amy, after the companies are paid their fair share of tax. The company tax rate in Australia is around 30%, depending on the size of the company. But again, let's stick to 30% because it's a nice round figure. So when Amy does her tax returns, she will need to declare a total income of $125,000, which she's earned, plus $15,000 in dividend income, plus the $4,500 that she's received in franking credits. So her total income becomes $144,500. That is, Amy would have received the entire pre-tax dividend of $15,000 plus $4,500 had the company not paid any tax on the dividends. Then she would have had to pay a tax rate of about 37.5% on those dividends because that's her marginal tax rate. But in Amy's case, she's already paid 30% tax by proxy because remember, the companies have already paid it for her. So afterwards, she can claim that as a tax credit against her assessable income. So out of the $15,000, she's only liable to pay the remainder gap of 7.5% tax because her marginal tax rate is 37.5%. And of course, the companies have already paid 30% tax on their profits and Amy kind of misses out on that. So as a result, the government says she can have that franking credits as a tax offset. This means she will only need to pay $1,125, beg your pardon, in taxes for her dividends rather than the whole $4,500. Now, some people say this is unfair, while others say it's fair because Amy's already paid taxes by proxy as the company has paid those taxes. That is, if the company hadn't paid those taxes, Amy would have received that money. Now, in other countries, there's no such concept where you need to be paying taxes from the company's perspective, but when Amy receives the money, then she would have to pay a Naja, you know, income tax on top of that. Whereas in Australia, you get that sort of franking credit benefit. So what can Amy do 
in order to try and minimise her taxes legally. Now, you've got to check with your accountant first of all for this, but if Amy's taxable income can be reduced from $125,000 to less than $90,000, then she will fall into the marginal tax rate of 32.5%. Now, Amy may have other deductible incomes, investment debts or rental properties which are negatively geared. So the more she's able to reduce her taxable income and keep it under $90,000, the more she will save in paying taxes as a result of her dividends. So if Amy's, instead of choosing to receive dividends and reinvesting them, she chooses to receive, let's say, a DSSP, and only some companies offer this and only some LICs offer this, then the shares she receives as a reward for holding those uh, investments are not taxable. Now, this is because they're received as shares and not as money. So it just means you need to keep an accurate record of the average cost basis of your share portfolio if this is the case. And when Amy decides to sell those shares received at a later date, she will need to know the average cost basis for those shares and will need to pay tax on any profits achieved, noting that she now owns those shares for greater than 12 months, in which case she will also be benefiting from a capital gains tax exemption for the first 50%, i.e. capital gains is not taxed the same as income. So in this case, the two different concepts are that if Amy receives the dividends then she's eligible for franking credits, but she will need to pay tax on those dividends based on what the franking credits are and based on her assessable income, based on her taxable income and based on her marginal tax rate. Or some companies, if Amy chooses to invest in those companies or LICs, may not provide the dividends as an income, but may give Amy the shares instead of actually giving her actual money, which is then reinvested into the investments And if that were to happen, then Amy would still need to realise her gains at some point if she sells those shares, but she would need to maintain an accurate record of what her average cost basis is. And then when she sells those shares, provided she owns it for greater than 12 months, she would still be eligible for capital gains tax exemption for the first 50%, but she will still need to pay the capital gains tax based on the average cost basis. So again, those are the two ways that um, dividends or DSSP uh, can be taxed. Now, why is this so controversial? And what was the issue in the last federal election? If you you know switch your minds back to 2019 in Australia, there was a huge controversy about franking uh, credits and franking refunds, etc. Now, the issue is Amy is paying taxes as she works. So it all goes well for her. But what happens in her retirement or low income years later on life? Now, let's see how this will potentially benefit Amy in her latter years of lower income as a retiree. Now, supposing Amy has built up her portfolio to about a million dollars in her retirement, and this produces dividends of about 3%, which are franked, and this is about $30,000 per year. Now, let's assume the franking credits attached to that is about $6,000. Now, the tax bracket for Amy is now only 19% because she's a low-income earner as a retiree. Now, this is higher than the company tax rate of 30%, and actually... um, uh, uh, sorry, this is actually lower, beg your pardon. The tax bracket for Amy is now 19%. This is lower than the company tax rate of 30%. So remember with frank dividends, these are franking credits attached to them, which can be used as tax credits because Amy has already paid taxes by proxy via the companies. 
But this is unfair for Amy because had she received the dividend this time around into her hands without having paid that company tax rate, she would have only paid 19% on those dividends. But now she's paid 30% even as a low-income earner. So when Amy files her tax returns, her total income is $30,000 plus $6,000 franking credits attached, so $36,000, now which is in the marginal tax rate of about 19%. She would only have paid 19% on this money, right? But now she's ended up paying 30% because of this sort of company tax rule. So she is now entitled to receive a tax refund for the overpayment of the tax. Now, the controversy is, which... I guess depends on which side of politics and what your worldview is. But I guess the controversy is or was, is that if Amy reduces her taxable income to below $18,000, then she pays no taxes to the government, right? Because you get an $18,000 tax-free threshold. But still, she's entitled to a tax refund. Now, prior to the John Howard era, this was not possible because, you know, the government Uh, you know, said that, you know, in the past, if you paid no taxes, then you don't get a refund. But John Howard changed it to make it that taxes paid by proxy, that is companies which have paid taxes and then dividends distributed to shareholders, should also count as taxes paid by the individual. And that's the controversy in the last federal election. And I won't go into the politics of it. And depending on your, uh, you know, political views, on your financial views, Some people say that money that is paid as taxation uh, via the companies is still taxation. Other people say, well, not really, because, you know, Amy would still need to pay more taxes based on what her income is. So I hope this clarifies how dividends and also DSSPs are taxed even if they're reinvested. Now, Now to the main topic, growth versus value investing. What are these concepts in investing and how do they differ and which one are you and which one is actually better than the other? Now, when it comes to investing, you know, what are the main aims? Uh, In my humble opinion, if you are investing in something, it has to do two things. Number one, it has to increase in value over the long term because you wouldn't want to invest in something that depreciates in value over the long term. That's not an investment. That's called killing your investments. And number two is the investment hopefully will provide an income over the long term as well. So growth versus value. Now, growth investing is when investors pick companies which they think will outperform the wider market. Value investing is when investors pick companies which they think are trading at a value less than what they're actually worth. Now, what are the key characteristics of growth investments? Number one, they're generally priced higher than the broad market. Now, this means investors are happy to pay a premium for these companies because they strongly believe over the long term the company will outperform the market, provide good earnings and earnings growth. Number two is growth companies are usually smaller companies which have, I guess, a larger vision in mind and therefore room to grow, and the management see the potential growth over the next 5, 10, or 15 years. Now, Tesla is a great example of a growth company. Uh, It did not exist 15 years ago, and now is one of the most valuable companies in the world and the rapidly growing company. In Australia, we have similar examples such as Afterpay, 
which was a great growth company in its infancy, uh, where it's accelerated its growth and profits and earnings over a relatively short period of time. Number three is, as a result of rapid expansion and growth, growth companies may succumb to more volatility. Now, this means the lofty share prices may crash at the end of bad financial news or if they don't meet their earnings expectations. Number four is, generally speaking, growth companies don't usually pay out any dividends. That is, they need all the money they can get to grow quickly. They tend to reinvest all of their profits back into the business in the hope of rising their earnings, which means this reflects on larger share prices, which is great for investors. So investors make money in growth companies by generating capital gains on their investment over the lifetime of their investment. So those are the key characteristics of growth investments. Now, what are the key characteristics of value investments? Number one, generally, they're trading at a value lower than their estimated value. So this makes it a very attractive investment for a lot of investors. The most famous value investor we know of is Warren Buffett. He analyzes businesses based on his unique formula, which some people say uses a Kelly criterion, uh, but he won't divulge what it is, to identify companies which are undervalued on his analysis. And he makes bids on those companies, takes them over, makes it more efficient, and pushes them to grow and sells them at a higher price when the market eventually values a company at the market rates. So he sees through the noise. And these companies still have great earnings despite bad news in the financial media. And the investors focus on the numbers and ignore the noise. And that's the beauty of Warren Buffett's way of investing. He doesn't worry too much about the price volatility as a result. And the way he explains it is that, you know, if you have a look at COVID or if you have a look at the 2009, uh, sorry, 2008 GFC, you know, banks, farming, food, manufacturing, distribution, logistics, healthcare, technology, they still exist despite what the financial media tell you about their prospects. You know, during COVID, Amazon still existed. During COVID, we still needed to drive cars. You know, essential workers still needed to get out. Um, We still used utilities. In fact, we used more utilities during COVID than perhaps ever before because more people were staying together and at home. So, which means more electricity, more water. So if you invest in these, you know, businesses and you identify the value, And over the long term, you're going to make money because nothing else has changed. Human behavior hasn't changed despite financial media or viral behavior, whatever it is, right? And that's what people like Warren Buffett look at. Now, again, these companies, these sort of value companies have great earnings despite bad news in the financial media. And generally speaking, these companies are larger companies which don't have much prospect for growth because they're already quite big, but pay a nice dividend which is consistent despite economic conditions, right? Dividend investors look for companies which provide value over the long term. So if you have a look at all the price volatility that has happened in the last sort of two to three years, the dividend aristocrats still pay dividends and they still maintain their share price, you know, and those companies have done so for a very long time and they're not going to change because those companies have a great moat, which means they have great protective features, great advantages, and they're going to continue to grow at a medium pace, not as a massive, massive you know, growth like the growth companies, but also along the way, they're going to give the investor a good dividend as well. 
So I guess the question is, can a company go from growth to a value company, uh, therefore attracting both styles of investors? And the answer is yes, because at the end of the day, investors want to buy something and sell it at a high price. So when it comes to investing and growth and value, investors have the same goals. They want to make money. Um, but they tend to take different routes for this. One route may be a bit more bumpy, while the other route may be a bit more smoother. The bumpier ride may produce greater returns at high risk, while the smoother ride may produce lower returns at lower risk. And it depends on what type of investor, what route you want to take, whether you want to take the volatile route or the bumpier ride, or whether you want to take the more smoother route and just enjoy the growth and a little bit of value, but also enjoy the dividends along the way as well. So is there a better one? Which one is better? Look, this is a really tricky answer uh, because I don't think there's any one right answer to this and it all depends on the time frame. So, you know, you can you can play with numbers and fudge it to suit your motivations. Um, you know, I read a post online that property has, you know, ri- risen in value over the last sort of 10 years or so, whereas the, you know, um, S&P ASX 200 has only grown by 11% per annum. You know, you can you can look at numbers and fudge them and make them say what you want to say based on your preconceived notion. Um, and, and clearly that statistic that I read on Facebook or whatever it was that I read on was clearly incorrect because the person that was posting it didn't understand total returns versus annual returns. So which one is better? Growth investors, you know, may outperform better over certain periods of time. So so during the previous 11-year bull market, for example, from 2009 to 2020, and the bull market is still going, um, growth investors did very well. But if you took it year by year, some years, value investors did way better. And the aim of investing, though, is to try and diversify as well, right? So it may well suit some investors to have a 50% of their money in growth assets and 50% of their money in value assets. Now, notice this is different to asset allocation. So when you allocate your resources to growth versus value, what you need to do first is determine your asset allocation. So you need to determine, you know, how much money you want in stocks and bonds and property. Then within stocks and funds, you need to determine your asset allocation between growth and value. So, and the other thing is growth companies tend to be in industries which are constantly changing. Information technology, health industries, etc. New technologies can revolutionize these industries, but in the value sector, they tend to be more larger, well-established companies. In Australia, it's the investment banks like Macquarie or the big four banks' financials tend to be more value-based investing, but it can change with time. Now, before we finish up, I want to discuss the concept of risk-adjusted returns because this is especially important when comparing the returns of growth and value investors and value stocks as a risk varies with each type of investment. I get a lot of questions about this all the time. Hey, what is the best investment? Well, you need to analyze an investment based on risk-adjusted basis. So what is risk-adjusted returns? This is when returns are calculated based on the given level of risk an investor must take in order to achieve those returns. Generally speaking, zero risk is government treasury bonds because governments, most of them, tend not to go bankrupt. Yes, there are some you know governments that go bankrupt, but generally in democracies, in capitalistic societies with a little bit of social welfare safety net, generally governments don't tend to go bankrupt, although that, that argument 
you know, might not work forever if you're listening in the year 2200, but certainly in 2021, that's true. So let's use an example to highlight this concept of risk-adjusted returns. Amy has invested in the stock market for 10 years. During this time, her annualised returns has been about 10% per annum. Her sister, Michelle, has invested in antique furniture for the same 10 years, and her returns during this time has also been 10% per annum. Does this mean investing in the stock market is just as risky as investing in antique furniture? Of course not. This is where risk-adjusted returns is important. I would argue that Amy took far less risk to achieve 10% per annum annualised returns than Michelle, who took a greater risk to achieve the same result. Notice the time period of those investments is exactly the same. The returns are exactly the same. But Amy took a far lower risk over that time frame compared to Michelle. So, is there any various methods of in measuring risk-adjusted returns? And the answer is yes. And we're going to go into the geeky concepts a little bit here before I finish up. So let's go into the various types of ratios, which are the Sharpe ratio, the Traynor ratio, the Jensen's alpha, the R-squared method, the Sortino ratio, and the Mogdiagliani ratio, which is basically M2, it's called. So let's briefly go into each one of them. So what is the Sharpe ratio? This is quoted in the media quite often. This ratio basically tells an investor how well they've been compensated for the risk taken in an investment. So the higher the ratio, the better the risk-adjusted return. The Traynor ratio, on the other hand, is a ratio that tells how much return an investment can provide an investor given the level of inherent risk of the investment. Now, the higher the ratio, the better the returns compared to the market risks. Jensen's alpha is when it measures the performance of an investment against the market index benchmark. So the alpha shows the performance of an investment after the risk has been considered. If alpha is less than zero, the investment is way too risky for the expected return. And if the alpha is greater than zero, then that means the return earned is greater than basically uh, the risk taken. And if the alpha is zero, then the return is sufficient for the risk taken. The R-squared ratio, this just means the movement of a fund based on the benchmark index. So the number varies from 0 to 100%. So if the fund has an R-squared value of 100%, this means the fund moved pretty much exactly with the index. The Sortino ratio, this is basically a variation of the Sharpe ratio. And basically, instead of measuring against the standard deviation, it measures the return against the downside risk of return. And the M2 measure of the Mogdialani ratio uh, is basically a fund's return in direct comparison to the benchmark index. So if a fund has a return of 15% compared to the benchmark return of 12%, then the M2 value is 15 minus 12, which is 3%. So what is the advantage of calculating risk-adjusted returns? There are three main advantages. The first one is it allows comparison of various asset classes because the risk of each asset class is different. Number two is it enables comparison of actual returns versus benchmark indices. And number three is it enables an investor to calculate returns based on a given level of risk and whether it's worth taking that risk. Remember, not all investments or asset classes are the same. Amy took far less risk to achieve 10% per annum returns than Michelle. 
who took far higher risk. So the risk-adjusted return is going to be different for both of them, even though the total returns is the same. Perhaps the most famous investor who weighs his portfolio called the all-weather portfolio is Ray Dalio, who recommends asset allocation based on risk rather than asset classes themselves. That's about it for this episode. We've covered dividends and distributions and taxation and DSSPs. We've covered growth versus value investing, the two main concepts, the similarities and the differences. And we've covered risk-adjusted returns, why it's important and how it can be used to compare various asset classes. Remember to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you may be using, or just leave a five-star rating and review on all the platforms. That's even better. And in that note, here is a review I found on CastBox app from James Zach, who says, Devraga Personal Finance should be the blueprint that is taught to all children. There is so much conflicting information out there, so if you're looking for a straightforward, easy-to-follow investment strategy where you won't be losing sleep at night, I suggest Deb's Five Simple Steps. Keep up the great work, and I look forward to buying your book one day. Thank you very much for the lovely feedback. Writing a book is something I would love to do, although I'm not a great writer, which is why I don't have a blog. Um, But I probably will write a book at some point, uh, maybe towards the end of my retirement, when I've sort of calculated my returns and what my net worth is, and, and maybe, you know, when I can make it a little bit more public, who knows? And I really want to start a YouTube channel, but I've got no idea how to create videos and the visual and the learnings. Seems like a lot of hard work, but I do follow a lot of, uh, you know, Finfluencers on YouTube, which, um, you know, a great learning opportunity. Uh, You know, YouTube has a lot of rubbish, but uh, a lot of it is actually very valuable, particularly when it comes to learning. So I just need to find more time to do it. Um, At the moment, time is very valuable and just don't have enough of it. Thank you very much for the feedback, James. I really appreciate it. Uh, please share this episode and on my channel as much as you possibly want. And if you're listening, remember, I do this for free. So the best thing you can do is leave a review, a five-star rating, and share it with friends and families. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to this podcast. So please keep them coming. Remember to like Devraga Facebook page, join me online, shout out for any questions and comments or topics, suggestions, and share this channel with family and friends, Apple, Anchor, CastBox, whatever platform that you use. And remember, always pay yourself first. You are the most important person in your life. Take at least 20% of after-tax income and put it aside. If you can do 50%, even better. The higher, the better, but at least 20%. And I hope you enjoyed this episode on growth versus value investing. This is Devraka Personal Finance, episode 124. And now more than ever, please stay safe. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.